How's the soup? Watching your reaction as you got a bowl of soup has been one of the highlights of my life. (laughs) Some of you don't know if you're supposed to eat it. Some of you don't know if you go to hell if you eat food in church. Some of you had no trouble eating it. And then you looked and no one else was eating it and you stopped. Some of you realized very quickly that the seats you're sitting in have pull-out trays and you're prepared for dinner there. And others are trying to hold their Bible and their soup and their water and it's really funny to watch. You can eat your soup. Feel free to do that. We're just trying to prep you for lunch and I heard that multiple small meals a day help you lose weight. So this is our help in... (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. My name is Jeremy. And I'm the campus pastor here if I haven't had the chance to meet you. And we're so thankful that you're here as we continue to look at um, Bless You. It's a series that we've been tracking with this year. And today we're going to look at a very interesting story from the book of Genesis. And, you know, what you hold in your hands, this soup, this bowl of soup, I don't know if you know this, but it holds huge historical value. I mean, like what you hold in your hand actually changed history. We'll get to that in just a minute. A few years ago, I was at a conference, and the guy that was speaking that day, he, he used the story from the book of Genesis that we're going to read today, and, and he delivered one of the most powerful, I mean, literally like life-transforming um, talks or messages that I've ever heard. And I was in a room of leaders, about 13,000 leaders, and at the end of that talk, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that 13,000-seat auditorium because of how personally challenging it was. And so some of what you're going to hear today was inspired and, and, and kind of came out of that moment where I was at that day. But we're, you know, we're talking about appetite a little bit today. You ever thought about your appetite? Have you ever thought, I mean, it's this intangible thing inside of you that tells you when you're hungry, right? And then sometimes it tells you what you're hungry for. Have you ever been in the car? Uh, maybe this is just me and my wife, but you ever been in the car and you know, one spouse or the other, one person in the car, or the other says, hey, what do you want to eat? And you're like, I don't care. And then they're like, okay, well, we'll go do like Italian. And you're like, oh God, I don't want that. Right? Because the, the appetite, you know, you're hungry, but you're not hungry for that. Whatever that was, you're definitely not hungry for that. So this appetite that we have, it's this intangible, you can't really put your finger on what it is, but it tells you when you're hungry. It tells you what you're hungry for. And interestingly about our appetites, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but our appetites are never fully satisfied. If you don't believe me, think about Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? We sit down at the table and we eat and eat and eat and eat and eat some more. And when we're just about done, grandma passes you another plate full of something And you eat some more and then you are groaning and moaning and complaining about how full you are. I don't care if I never see food ever again. And you kind of crawl to the couch and you unbutton or unbuckle your belt a little bit just so you can breathe. And you lay down and then you see that bowl of peanut M&Ms right there on the counter (laughs) beside the couch. And you're like, oh, I got to have some of those. And you're like, does anybody want any pumpkin pie? Yeah, is there whipped cream? I'll take some. Right? Because our appetites are never fully satisfied. Even if we think we're full, even if we think or believe or feel in a certain moment that we are fully satisfied, there will come a moment, usually just a few minutes beyond that, where we can take more. It's because our appetite only has a one word vocabulary, and the word is more. Right? More. 
my appetite just tells me more. I need more food. I need more sweets. I need more chips and salsa. I mean, it's just more, more, more. That's why dieting is so hard. Because we are literally training our appetite a new vocabulary. We're teaching our appetites a new language. Instead of more, we're saying less. Instead of I'll have another, we're saying portion control. Or whatever the heck that means, right? Instead of three humongous meals, we're thinking six small meals. It's, it's all about teaching and learning an entirely new vocabulary. But appetite is not only related to food. Appetite is also other aspects of our life. You think about finances. You think about uh, our jobs. And, you know, we want to be happy. We want to be successful. We want to be kind of financially self-reliant. We want to get promoted on our jobs. And so the appetite to be and do all of these things has the same one word vocabulary that our food appetite has more. You know, we have some money. We want more money on our jobs. We may have some limited authority or power or something, you know, symbolizing that. And so we want more power and authority on our jobs. We have a house. We want a bigger house. We have one car. We want two cars. And then we want two better cars. Our kids are in this school, but we want to go to this better school. And, and in and of themselves, not all of those things are sinful, but it's the idea that our appetite can push us more and more towards some things that begin to take control of our lives and become the driving motivation for who we are and what we are and what we're becoming because our appetite is telling us, you're not satisfied yet. You need more of this or more of that to be more and more satisfied. And so don't be content with what you have. Push for more. And so if we're not careful, the one word vocabulary of our appetites will begin to cause us to push into things and begin to trade things in our lives that otherwise we never would have imagined trading what we had for what we now need or want. And so we have to understand before we get into anything else today that our appetites are never fully satisfied. I want you to repeat this after me. My appetite is never fully satisfied. So I can't let it rule my life. We're going to say it again. My appetite is never fully satisfied. So I can't let it rule my life. Your response to that statement ultimately will determine the outcome of your life, your family your business, and your marriage. And a thousand other things. That your appetite is never fully satisfied. And so you can't let it rule your life. If you've got a Bible, you can flip with me to Genesis chapter 25. That's where we're going to hang out today. We're just going to read a portion of that passage in Genesis 25. We're just going to kind of hang there and land there and see maybe what it says to us in the way that we live. Genesis chapter 25, beginning with verse 21. And this is what it says. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah, who is his wife, became pregnant with twins. But listen to this. The two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, catch this. The sons in your womb will become two nations. 
From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. So we have Isaac and Rebekah, that's the parents, okay? Isaac, if you've been tracking with us for a couple weeks, is the son who Abraham, we talked about Abram over the last few weeks, Abram was called to sacrifice his you know, son, the promised child, that's Isaac, and so he obviously lives because God intervened in that sacrifice. So we have Isaac here, and he marries a woman named Rebekah, and Rebekah can't have children, and so Isaac is pleading with God, let my wife get pregnant, and sure enough, she gets pregnant with twins, and so in her womb, she's carrying these two children, and they are wrestling and fighting and, you know, and she can feel it. My wife and I have four kids. I remember the first time I felt, you know, externally a baby kick. It freaked me out. I thought, what alien child is living inside of you, right? But like she could feel that internally. She, she could feel when it rolled over and at night when she would lay down to go to bed, she could feel that child inside of her just kind of, you know, kicking or what. Okay, so Rebecca's freaked out enough to go, there are two kids having a fist fight in my stomach, Like, what's going? She's pleading to God, please make them stop. What are they doing? And so God says, listen, you got two kids living inside of you, and they're going to be rivals from day one. Two nations. And they're going to war against one another. They're going to be rivals. And so they have two, two sons. Esau is the oldest of the two sons that are born to Isaac and Rebekah. And Jacob is the younger of the two sons that are born to Isaac and Rebecca and Esau grows up to be what the Bible just considers to be this man's man. He's hairy. He's a hunter. He, we later learn in this text, uh, like the next chapter over, that he has this distinct outdoorsy smell, right? I envision Esau as a character on Duck Dynasty. <laughs> like, I, he's, you know, he's hairy and he's a hunter. And I imagine those guys stinking. I don't know why, but I just imagine it. So that's Esau. He's the oldest son of two brothers. Jacob is what the Bible calls a mama's boy. I mean, it literally, the Bible really does say that like Jacob was his mama's favorite. And like he loved his mom. And so one day, here's what happens in this story. Esau goes out to hunt. That's who Esau is. He's a hunter. Hunter gatherer. All right, let's go. That's Esau. He goes out to hunt. Jacob is cooking. Okay? That's what Jacob does. He doesn't go hunt. He cooks. If you like to cook, guys, man, no offense to you. God bless you. I'm not, I don't, I can't do either. I don't know what my skill set is. All right? And I, I just eat. I don't, I'm the guy that eats whatever they hunted and whatever they cooked. So, like, I'm the third, like, illegitimate brother. I have no idea. Like, And so Esau's hunting. He's doing what he does. And Jacob is cooking. He's doing what he does. And then Esau comes in and and, and like he is famished. I mean, he feels like he is literally, and scriptures say this, he feels like he's about to die. He's so hungry. I have no idea how long he's been hunting. But like he feels like if I don't get something to eat now, I'm going to die. And so he says to his brother who's been cooking soup that you're he didn't. That's not it's not a couple thousand years old. We just made that this morning. But like he says to his brother who's been cooking soup, he says, listen, I need some soup. Please give me something to eat. If you don't give me something to eat, I am literally going to die. And here's what it says. We can pick up here in verse 31. Jacob says, all right. But trade me your rights as the firstborn son. 
Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Now, I'm no psychologist, but this is typical younger brother action here. I have a younger brother. I think this is what he would do. If I walked in and I said, Jason, man, I am starving. Like, I'm, I think I'm about to die. Like, I'm, I'm going down for the count here. Give me, you know, a bite of your Whopper. I think he'd be like, absolutely, here. But first, right? Some of the older siblings just laughed at that. The younger siblings are about to walk out. They're gathering their belongings now. And so Jacob says to his brother, he was like, absolutely, yeah, I'll give you some soup. But in, in return, I need you to trade me your birthright. I need you to trade me your birthright. It was a trade that he was proposing here. I'm a sports guy. I love sports and I'm a huge Atlanta Braves fan. And this week the Atlanta Braves made a trade. They tr- I got an amen on that. <laughs> God bless you, my son. I, I don't know. I just The Atlanta Braves made a trade. They traded Martin Prado to the Arizona Diamondbacks with some minor leaguers for a guy um, with the last name Upton, Justin Upton. We already had his brother. We signed him this offseason. So we got Upton and we got a guy named Chris Johnson. Now, those that know, they're in the know. They, they kind of understand sports and baseball and trades. They weigh this out and they think that the Braves did really well. Most people that you listen to, they say, man, the Braves did well because they improved their team for this season and for the next couple of seasons. That's great. But trades are, they're interesting because what happens in a trade, and and if you've ever been a part of any trade, you traded baseball cards as a kid or, you know, Barbie dolls or whatever girls did. I didn't trade those. I don't know. But like you traded something as a child or you trade cars now or gold bonds or whatever. I have no idea what you would trade. But if you've ever traded anything, you know that a trade works like this. I have something that I'm going to offer you in return for something you have that I want. And we've got to come to some fair agreement that what I'm offering you and what you're offering me are at least equal enough in value that we feel like this is a fair trade. But when I walk away from this, I'm going to feel like I totally stole this from you, right? I got another amen back there. So, all right. So we we walk away from the trade table like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely fair. Yeah, man, what you're offering me, what I'm offering you, these are fair things. And we walk away and we tell our buddies, dude, he had no idea what I did to him right there. One day I, I, I traded in a car and, and I was trading in this car to get money towards another car. And the guy that was accepting my trade offered me a certain amount of money. And it was so much higher than I thought I could possibly get for the piece of junk that I was trading in. And I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, I don't think this guy realizes like I just, I just kind of. I got way more money than I thought. And I'm walking away feeling really good about myself until a couple of days later when I found out he had listed the car that I sold him for a couple thousand dollars more than that and sold it. I'm thinking, man, I could have sold it for that much, right? Because trades are about finding equal value on both sides of the equation, something that is of equal value that we trade. I have something that I have. You have something that you have. We're going to swap those things and they're equal And that's really what a pure trade is uh, is to be about. And so Jacob here is saying, yeah, you want some soup? Absolutely. I will trade you a bowl of soup for what would be equal to a bowl of soup to this younger brother. Oh, I don't know. How about you trade me your birthright? Now, if you're not really aware of what birthright is, let me explain it to you really simply. Birthright implies three things to the oldest male in the family during this culture and time. 
It implies that they're going to receive double the inheritance of any other child in the family. And it implies that they're also going to be the authority figure to rule and reign over the family. All right. And it implies the blessings and favor of God upon their life. Okay. So simple terms. I'm a simple guy. If daddy Isaac has $15,000 to give an inheritance to his two sons, the birthright to Esau means that he's going to get $10,000 and his brother's only going to get $5,000. And not only that, but while Isaac is alive, because Esau has the birthright, he is second in command in the family. He's more powerful than mom, Rebecca. And when daddy Isaac dies, I, Esau, with my birthright, become the most powerful man in the family. And not only that, the hand and favor and blessing of God is on my life because I possess the birthright that comes to me from being the firstborn in the family. Okay, so now I want you to think about this trade. Jacob's saying, I will give you a bowl of soup if you give me double the inheritance... Authority in the family and the blessings in favor of God for the rest of my life. Seems pretty fair, right? I mean, honestly, this has got to be the worst trade in the history of mankind. I mean, this has to be the absolute who in their right mind would trade their birthright for a bowl of soup. Every single one of us. If it's the right bowl of soup. Every single one of us. For the right bowl of soup. You and I would trade it all away. If it's the right bowl of soup. If the conditions are just right. If we're in a place where we're listening to our appetite. That's saying more. More, more, better, other, different, more, quench me, fulfill me, feed me. Every single one of us would make that trade. If it was the right bowl of soup. A bowl of soup for a birthright. A bowl of soup for double the inheritance the authority in the family and the blessings in favor of God to quench an appetite that is never fully satisfied. Psychologists have studied this and they, they believe we're all the same. They believe that there's two things at play here. That when your appetite says, hey, you need more, You need something. You need to feed this. You need to do this. Your appetite needs something. There's two things that happen. Right? I mean, every single one of us. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you're male or female. This is not just a guy problem, girl problem, anything. The first thing that happens is something called impact bias. Impact bias. You you look at something, you see something, and you kind of trick yourself. Your brain lies to you. It actually lies to you to trick you to think that the impact of making this decision 
and what it will do for you, how good this will be for you. I mean, you, you look at it and you go, man, I am going to have um, these good things. This great thing is going to happen. These good feelings, the respect of my peers, the things that are going to happen, the enjoyment, the entertainment, the fun, all of these things. The impact bias says, man, you're going to be impacted in an incredible way if you, if you feed this part of your appetite. It's why we have buyer's remorse. Because it doesn't play out like that. It's bias. It's not true. It's the way that your brain tricks you into thinking that if you feed this part of your appetite, you're going to be impacted in a really positive, great, like outstanding, you can't even measure it way. And really you buy it and you go, wow, I have a huge car payment now. Wow, this is not at all what I thought. This doesn't feel like I thought it would feel. It doesn't seem like I thought it would seem. How did I get here? You got here because of impact bias. The second thing that happens to you is this thing called focalism. I don't know if you've ever seen like a picture. If you have Instagram or something, it's what you can do. You can do focalism with your pictures. You can take that little, you know, like fuzzy thing and you can focus in on one piece of the picture and you can blur everything else out. That's what happens in your mind. When your appetite is saying more, 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 focalism kicks in and you look at it and you go, wow, I'm focused on this one thing and what this is going to do and what this is going to be like. And you blur out everything else. You focus on the thing that you want and you blur out and avoid and ignore the thing it's going to cost you. Esau's sitting there going, I've got to have soup. And he's thinking soup and he's looking at soup and he's wanting to eat soup. And he blurs out and forgets the idea that he is losing out on double the inheritance, the authority of the family and the blessings in favor of God. Impact bias and focalism. They're not excuses at all. But it's the way you and I process information if we're not careful. And we're going to talk about how to kind of get through those things. But any of us would fall prey to those things and then give up the birthright for a bowl of soup. And any of us would do it for the right bowl of soup. I mean, don't you wish you could just interrupt the story? I do. I wish I could jump into Genesis chapter 25 and I wish that I could just kind of get right there in between Esau and Jacob. And Esau's like, he's dying of starvation, he believes. And Jacob is sitting here manipulating and and offering a trade and he's got the bowl of soup ready and he's probably, it's like lentil stew, which makes me want to throw up. But in that moment, maybe Esau thinks this is exactly what he's got to have. And so he's like wafting the smell of lentil stew towards his brother. You know, this is what you need. This is really what you need, right? Younger brothers, they'll do that to you. And I would love to get in the middle of that and I would love to hold Jacob back just for a moment so I could look at Esau. And I would say, can can I help you see how this story is going to play out if you make this trade? Can I just, can I flash forward just a little bit and help you see how this is going to play out? And if we take impact bias off the table and focalism off the table, can I show you what this is actually going to look like on the other side of this moment? And I would flash forward just a little bit and I'd go, Esau, you're destined to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to become a great nation. And all the people of that nation and all the people that later will be grafted into that nation through the work of God, they're going to pray a prayer to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Esau. 
except that you're going to eat this bowl of soup. And the prayer becomes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forever. And a couple thousand years from now, God is going to send his son to earth. And he's going to come to earth and he's going to live. And I know that seems crazy, but like the God that you pray to and man, he's going to come to earth and he's going to live and he's going to die. And then a couple years after that, a man named Matthew is going to write a book and he's really creative. So he's going to call that name of that book, Matthew. And at the beginning of the book of Matthew, written by the guy named Matthew, at the very beginning in Matthew chapter one, he's going to write the story of how God's son, Jesus came to earth. And he's going to tell all the people that ever read that story, which is going to go on to be the most printed book in the history of mankind. And I know you can't grasp how big that is, but that's really big. And in Matthew chapter 1, they're going to track down that story and they're going to go, God's son Jesus came to earth through Abraham and through Isaac and through Esau. Except that you're going to eat this bowl of soup in just a second. And thousands of years from now, when Matthew writes Matthew chapter 1, it's going to say, Jesus, God's son, came to earth through Abraham and Isaac and the guy trading you this bowl of soup. And if I could live in that moment and stand in that tent between two brothers, I think I would say to Esau, It would be better for you to die of starvation here on the floor of this tent than to sacrifice the future that you can't even imagine on the worst trade in the history of mankind. The reality is, I can't go back and do that. I I can't jump into that tent And I can't get into that moment and I can't help him see where he's allowing impact bias and where he's allowing focalism to just kind of blind him to the cost of what he's doing. And for me and for you, in the moments where we are offered a trade, the moments where we know what we're being offered, but we probably can't fully grasp what we're giving up. There's probably nobody in that moment that can step into the story and say to you, this is a terrible trade. Like this is who in their right mind, if I could play the story out for you, would give up all that is before you for a bowl of soup. There's probably nobody that's ever going to be standing there. When your appetite says more. When the person on the other end of that trade is holding the bowl of soup. And you're left to make a choice. I mean, our hope, our desire is to help be a community of believers and a body of people here that support one another and pray together. And man, when we leave in a minute, we're going to walk out into the lobby for group link. And we, we want you to sign up for life groups and to get into relationship and to encourage one another and pray with one another and hold one another accountable. But ultimately, when you're offered the trade, you're going to have to fall back and remember the vows that you took the oath that you took for your job, 
You're going to have to remember the moment that you realized that God forgave you. And you're going to have to go, man, I'd be an idiot to make this trade. You have to reframe the trade. You have to reframe the appetite and, and you have to kind of think through a totally different lens. You can't just focus on the trade and what you're getting. You have to think about what you're giving up. You have to reframe it. You can't just focus on, man, I'm getting the soup that I got to have here to quench and to fulfill my appetite. Because we already said your appetite is never fully satisfied. It's a momentary quenching. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to satisfy. And if we allow our appetite to dictate our lives, the way that we live, we will trade our entire future for a bowl of soup. I want to ask some questions. What's your bowl of soup? I don't want you to answer it out loud. I'm not looking for you to write it on your worship guide. What's your bowl of soup? I mean, what could someone hold out in front of you that you would have a hard time saying no to? There are very few things in that moment that you would not trade away for that. Money, fame, glory, promotion, authority, power, relationship, fulfillment, physical and otherwise. What's your bowl of soup? What is it that you would have a lot of trouble saying no to? What is it that right now you can think of how your brain would justify why this is okay? Why this is a good trade? Why this is fulfilling? Why this makes sense? What are you currently, this is for the married folks. What are you currently contemplating that your spouse is uncomfortable with? That's probably your bowl of soup. Let me ask another one. This is for everybody. What are you doing now that's probably not illegal? It's probably not immoral. But you pray to God nobody ever finds out about it. That's probably your bowl of soup. That's a reframing question. It's a question that recenters it not on what am I getting? How is this fulfilling me? How is this quenching my appetite? You're reframing that by saying, what would happen if I had to stand in front of a group of people and tell them what I've done? What would it feel like to tell my spouse? What would it feel like to tell my kids? What would it feel like to tell my family, to tell my coworkers? What would it feel like if the story popped up on the news? It's a reframing question. It doesn't matter if it's illegal. It doesn't matter if it's immoral. What are you doing right now that you pray to God nobody ever finds out that you're doing? That's probably your bowl of soup. And so you have to reframe the appetite. Because the truth for Esau is the truth for you. And it's the truth for me. None of us know what our future holds. None of us know what God wants to do through you 
and your children and your future and your legacy, the heritage that you have in front of you, like none of us know what the future holds. But there will come those used by the enemy and maybe even some well-intended folks who would put a bowl of soup in front of you and give you the opportunity to trade all of the unknown for the bowl of soup in front of you. And if you don't reframe the appetite and refrain from the trade, you'll do exactly what Esau did. And exactly what a lot of people that you and I know have done. Maybe some of you in this room, some of us, you'll make the worst trade in the world. And potentially forfeit all that God has in front of you for a bowl of soup. I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes just for a moment as the band comes. God, I, uh, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here on days like this to look to your scripture and to be challenged and convicted and, I don't know, just awakened to the power of your word. And God, I just pray right now for every person in this room that when they're confronted with a trade, they're confronted with something, their bowl of soup, a bowl of soup, whatever that metaphor extends to in their life, that God, ultimately, they would not trade away their birthright. They wouldn't trade away the inheritance, the authority, the blessings and favor of God. They wouldn't trade away a marriage something that looks better right now. They wouldn't trade away a family for something that seems like less stress. They wouldn't trade a good job. They wouldn't trade a good house, a good life for a little extra money off the table, under the table. They wouldn't trade it away for an extra deduction that we hope nobody finds out about. God, I pray right now that you would help us to reframe our appetite and understand it's not just about what we get, but it's about what we would have to give away. And God, give us the courage to refrain from those kinds of decisions. God, let us understand that if we were to hold to our birthright, we hold the blessings of God, the favor of God that we've already discussed for three or four weeks now. That being blessed by God is to find ourselves in relationship with God, with an eternal purpose, with God's provision, living life with God's people. Let us be satisfied in that. Let us live in that. With every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody's looking around. It's a very quiet and sacred moment where I believe that God's Spirit, His power is just working in our hearts. 
nobody's looking around. If you would say to me, Jeremy, I need prayer right now. Because, man, there's a bowl of soup in front of me. And I need the courage to make the right decision. I need God's power and strength in and through me to do what's right. Would you lift your hand? And put it right back down. Thank you so much. Now, for all of us, I want to pray and just say, God, it may not be that it's happening in this moment. It may be that it's already happened. And we need to seek the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. Or maybe it's still out there in front of us and the enemy hasn't kind of brought that to us yet. Or it's coming down the pipe somewhere. And we need to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is walking with us. We've been singing about it. We prayed about it. But ultimately, it's about me. Having the courage to make good decisions, wise decisions, to lean into the mercy of God. To let his strength and power work through me. To reframe my appetite and reframe my terrible trade that will cost me far more than I can ever imagine. God, I pray for every person here. For courage and strength and boldness. I pray, God, that you would help us to... Just live lives for you. God, that when we find ourselves in situations where we're offered, we're given, we're tempted with something that we think seems like a good trade. But God, we would have wisdom enough to seek you and seek your wisdom and seek your word and to be in relationship with others that we bounce off. We would just lean into their wisdom, discernment. God, I pray that you would help us in those moments. To listen to the still small voice inside of us. That Holy Spirit that you promised you would leave us. God, that we would lean into the vows that we made. The oaths that we took. The promises that we've made to others. We would be the kind of people that honor you in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, we pray.